Okay, we'll now hear uh, this morning's scripture reading. Godfrey will come and read that, and then I will be back for today's teaching. I'll be coming from Acts 1, 1 through 12. In my former book, Theolopus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them his command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in, the, in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes to you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky, and as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has, take, who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day, Walk from the city. God bless. Amen. So, today, we start a new series, uh, looking at the book of Acts. Um, I'm excited for it. And I consider this as we begin. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm wondering, uh, how many love a good fairy tale? I think we all do, right? To some degree, we all enjoy fairy tales. Uh, there's something uh, really alluring about a fantasy land where the remarkable uh, takes place, uh, where there are ex these extraordinary places where the remarkable takes place. Uh, that fantasy land for some uh, might be Middle Earth in Lord of the Rings, or it might be Narnia, or it might be the setting of some Roald Dahl story like Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, or maybe it's Black Panther's Wakanda, but it's these extraordinary places where extraordinary people are doing extraordinary things. Uh, they often seem larger-than-life places, and often, when we think about what takes place in the Bible, I do think that we tend to approach the stories of the Bible, in those similar kinds of terms. We think about these extraordinary stories uh, that are often in our minds rooted in these kind of fantasy lands. But the unique reality of the Bible is that though there are certainly extraordinary events that take place in the Bible, they are all rooted remarkably in ordinary settings, and they're all rooted in remarkably ordinary people that God chooses to use in extraordinary ways. It is the extraordinary occurring through the ordinary. And what we're going to do today is begin this series in Acts with that frame of mind, 
that God does extraordinary things through the ordinary. And the book of Acts is one of the books of the Bible where we see some of the most extraordinary events take place in all of the Christian faith. And so what we're going to see over the course of this series is that while some of those things that took place in the book of Acts were for a particular season of the life of the church, there's also opportunity for us to see how God desires to continue to do extraordinary things through very ordinary people. And I'm hopeful that as we go through this series, in particular we're going to see how God desires to do extraordinary things in East Harlem, in New York City, and to do it through ordinary people like you and me. Now this series is going to, we're going to spend some time really going through the book of Acts. It's actually going to run us all the way through into the new year. Uh, We will take a break in this series for uh, the Advent season, but other than that, we're going to spend some time looking at the book of Acts. And today, we start at the very top, looking at Acts 1. So let me give you a little bit of uh, background on Acts so that we know what we're stepping into over the course of the series. Uh, the book of Acts uh, was written by Luke, uh, who, has the, who is the same person that wrote the Gospel of Luke. If you were here earlier in the year, which honestly feels like an eternity ago, uh, we actually did a, a short series looking through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the book of Acts, though, is largely the sequel, I guess, to what was happening in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, You can see in the very beginning portion of our uh, passage that it's addressed to a man named Theophilus. Now, I don't really have have time to get into all the theories about who he is. No one really knows who Theophilus was. But Luke is writing both the Gospel of Luke and also uh, this, the Gospel, or the uh, Book of Acts, to Theophilus, with the intention that this, uh, this letter, this story that he's telling, would be distributed to uh, all the different churches that were now in existence when he wrote it. Uh, and what he's doing is he's intentionally, he's intentionally setting up this two-part telling of what took place in the life of Jesus, life uh, and death of Jesus, which is what we see in the Gospel of Luke, and now what's happening after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And for us today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at one of the more remarkable events that we see take place in the book of Acts, which is the ascension of Jesus. Okay. Now, depending on your church tradition, you probably have not heard uh, very much about the ascension of Jesus and what it really means and why it's important. Uh, But we start here today because the ascension of Jesus is actually one of the more pivotal moments that takes place in the history of God's redemption. Um, It sets into motion the extraordinary birth of the New Testament church, which which is a result of ultimately something extraordinary happening through the ordinary. And so I want to understand this ascension and why it's so important for us today. I want to do that by simply looking at, one, what is the ascension? Two, why we need it? And then finally, why it matters to us now. Uh, I know that uh, when we think about Jesus, there are several events that obviously come to mind in the life of Jesus. Of course, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection are all things that we think about. We have holidays that actually mark those days. Uh, But if you have uh, been part of uh, a church that closely follows the church calendar, the most that you've probably ever heard about Ascension Day 
is that it happens uh, 40 days after Easter. And if you are part of a church tradition that follows the church calendar, that's on the church calendar. But I wonder what we know, what we know about the ascension and why it's even marked on that day. What is it? And maybe a better question, why don't we celebrate it? Might be another thing to process and consider. Because I want to make a bold statement about the ascension of Jesus. That bold statement is simply this, that Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection really aren't worth celebrating unless we consider also his ascension. Let's see why. What is it? Well, let's look at our passage. Uh, Verses 6 through 11, there's a lot that needs to be considered there in that passage. And what I want to do, I want to first just look at verse 6. And for context in what's happening in verse 6, let me just quickly read for you again uh, what was taking place back in verse 3. So back in verse 3, it tells us that after Jesus' resurrection, he spent 40 days talking with his disciples about the kingdom of God. Right? That's key. He spent time talking with them about the kingdom of God. Now fast forward to uh, verse 6. Look at what it says. It says, then they gathered around him, right? So now the disciples gather around Jesus and asked him, Lord, are you coming at this time? I'm sorry, are you going, sorry, let me back up. Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, so catch what happens there. Jesus spent 40 days talking with them about the kingdom of God. And now just before he leaves, they ask him if he's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, it's worth pointing out uh, it's how incredibly ignorant Jesus' disciples are still at this point in their relationship to him. Uh, if you ever want to consider the extent to which God really does use the ordinary, look no further than the disciples. And the reason I say that is because these men had just spent years with Jesus. Right? They had the greatest seminary education that anyone on the planet has ever had. They experienced his teachings, they saw his miracles, they saw his death and the power of his resurrection. And then after his resurrection, they spent 40 days talking with Jesus about, his, about the kingdom of God. And after all of that, they essentially say to him, okay, that's cool, but when are you making Israel powerful again? Right? This question in verse 6, it's a political question. They want to know if Jesus is going to overthrow Rome, right? They still could not get their minds around um, what the kingdom of God actually was. They could not get beyond this nationalistic fervor that they had, that there was going to be some kind of resurrection of national Israel. And so after they say that, Jesus' response essentially boils down to, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And then he ascends. Now, as you might expect, this leaves the disciples uh, a bit bewildered. If you look at verses 9 through 11, the disciples are just basically left standing there staring at the sky. And I have to imagine that the disciples were left quite disappointed. They were disappointed that Jesus was gone, of course. They were also disappointed that he didn't actually do what they were hoping he was going to do, which was to bring uh, Israel back into dominance and power. But then what we see are two angels that come. And the two angels basically say to the disciples, what are you doing? Jesus has been taken to heaven and he will return in the same way. And then verse 12 tells us 
that they, the disciples, then head back to Jerusalem, just like Jesus had told them to do. And here's the interesting thing. I'm setting all of this up for a reason. The interesting thing is at the end of the Gospel of Luke, which I said, you know, was the first part of Luke's overall narrative, uh, he gives a very, very condensed version of this story. So he expands on it here in Luke 1, or Acts 1, but at the end of Luke, he, uh, he just gives a very condensed version. And in that version, back in Luke, he ends the telling of, that, of the story by saying that when they went back to Jerusalem, that they went back with great joy and worship. Now, that's what's interesting. What happened there? What took the disciples from this bewilderment that they are in, that we see in Acts 1, to worship as they went back to Jerusalem? Well, what I think happened there is that it was largely what the angels had said that clicked something for them. Clicked something about what the kingdom of God was going to be. All right, the angels said, let me reread exactly what the angels said. Said that this same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I mean, that statement, when we understand it, brings a clarity to what the ascension is and why it should then lead us to worship and joy. So what does then that statement mean? Well, what clicked for the disciples in this moment, I think is what has also clicked for all of the other New Testament writers, specifically about where Jesus went when he left. Here's what I mean. When one thinks about the ascension of Jesus, uh, we do often uh, immediately begin to think about his physical ascension, meaning he like, floated up into the clouds, uh, which is true, which we see here. But when we consider how the New Testament speaks of Jesus' ascension, they're not referring to this physical floating up. Right? There's, this, there's another kind of ascension that I do think that we're generally familiar with, specifically an ascension to power. I mean, think about what it means, for example, to ascend to the throne. You know, we know that it does not mean that one physically ascends to sit on the throne. That ultimately is meaningless to just be able to walk up to a throne. And if that's all that Jesus did, if Jesus just ascended, like he floated up, that's really not saying much at all. But what if Jesus' ascension to the throne means something far more. What if it means that now he possesses power and authority and rule that comes with a throne? I mean, that would be something entirely different, and that is exactly what happens and what the New Testament writers understood happens. To give you an example, in Romans 8, it says this, that Christ is the one who died, more than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God. If you've been with us, you know that that idea of sitting at the right hand of God, it's, it's a, um, a position of authority. It's to sit on the throne. Colossians 3 says that if we have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We just spent uh, weeks going through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews over and over again. Hebrews 1, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10 speak about Jesus being raised and seated on a throne. But Ephesians 1, I think, gives the most context for the power of what the angels told us and what we see in Acts 1. In Ephesians 1, verse 20, it says this. It says that Christ was raised and is seated 
at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above the rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. Now, what does that mean? That means that the disciples, and maybe many of us, have a horrifically narrow view of what it means for Jesus to be on the throne. They initially saw Jesus on the throne of national Israel. That's where their minds went. But the throne on which Jesus now sits is not a throne that rules over a nation, but it's a throne that rules over the cosmos. Jesus is king over the universe. And so what then is the ascension of Jesus? Well, it's a conferral of power. The ascension of Jesus is Jesus now ruling as king. Now something else worth noting that we cannot spend much time on, but it is interesting to consider. But, and it's actually this one thing that we'll consider is essential to what we call eschatology or the study of final things is namely that Jesus, when he ascended, he ascended as a human, in flesh, bodily form. And the angels tell us that he will one day come back in the same way. And the reason why that matters is that Jesus, post-resurrection, was not some enigma or some ghost or some vision. He was a physical being with a resurrected body. And he ascended to the throne of the universe physically. Don't ask me how all of this works, because I don't know. But Jesus, in bodily human form, rules and reigns right now. I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how all that works. But there's something powerful about that. Because Christianity is an embodied faith that takes very seriously the physical realities of life and takes very seriously the physical restoration of the universe. The physical and the spiritual are intertwined in that way. This is why God insists that our bodies and this creation be treated in honorable and God-glorifying ways. It's the reason why things like gluttony and sexual immorality and what we look at and how we treat one another and stewardship of creation all matter because the physical matters. I mean, Jesus, our Savior, is right now in a resurrected form, which gives us a picture and a vision of what is to come, what we will experience, what the restoration of the cosmos will be. The work of Jesus brings healing and restoration through his resurrection power. And I do mean literal, physical healing and restoration. You know, one of the beautiful um, prophecies that was spoken of about Jesus in Isaiah 53 says this. It's famous. We uh, say it much during uh, Easter says this, he says that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And in other words, that portion of this prophecy, prophecy is saying that God has saved us from our sins. Thanks be to God. But then it also goes on to say that by his wounds, we are healed. And hear me, friends, that is in some sense a spiritual reality, yes. But make no mistake that that is also a physical one as well. In the end, death will take us all, 
Yes. But like Jesus, on the other side of death, there is complete healing and restoration. Now, I want to say something about that idea, though, that idea of physical healing. Because there are some who would assert that healing is ours now if we would just have enough faith. And I think it's worth noting, worth at least worth noting, that do I believe that God heals now? Yes, absolutely. Do I believe that that healing is guaranteed for all of us now? Absolutely not. And there are those who would claim that if we just have enough faith, we will experience healing in this life. And for those that do believe that, I, I struggle to understand fully where that comes from. Because one, I think it, it obviously just doesn't make sense with the reality. At some point, we are all going to die of something. But I also think that view has a very small vision of God's promises. And the reason why I say that is because it's child's play to heal someone who will only eventually get sick and die. The real power is when sickness and death are crushed in the resurrection. And this is the hope that we experience because of the ascension of Jesus. That power belongs to Christ. And so lest we uh, lose hope, it's important to know that Jesus Christ, our Savior, rules and reigns with a physical resurrected body right now. So that if you are sick, or those that you love are sick, see Jesus in his full and glorious resurrected body and know that in him you too shall possess the same. Thanks be to God. So the ascension of Jesus assumes that Christ, who ascends to power, is this victorious king that conquers his and our enemies' sickness and death, that life, death, and resurrection have accomplished that which he intended, and as a result, Jesus now ascended to rule over the cosmos. That's what the ascension of Jesus is. But let's also consider quickly why it was needed. Why did Jesus need to ascend to power? I think there are many ways that we can answer that question, but the most overarching way to say this, I've tried to boil it down to this one statement about why it was needed. That the ascension of Jesus activates the work of Jesus into a movement of power that transformed the world through the spirit of Jesus. Right, let me say that again. This is why it was needed. Because the ascension of Jesus activates the work of Jesus into a movement of power that transformed the world through the spirit of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Let me unpack that a bit. The ascension of Jesus and the events that follow, which we're going to look at uh, throughout this series, brings clarity, I think, to a couple of statements that Jesus made about what he sought to accomplish in coming. And those two, there's two statements in particular that we see in John 14 and John 16 that I want to point us to that say a lot about what we're seeing here in Acts 1. In John 14, Jesus makes a statement that's uh, pretty odd and has caused actually confusion for some over the years. Uh, in verses 11 and 12 of John 14, it says this. Jesus is saying this. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me 
will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Now, what does that mean? That because Jesus is going to the Father, we shall do greater things than Jesus did. How is that even possible? And then if you fast forward to John 16, Jesus says, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the Advocate or the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. All right, so let's put all that together. Jesus is saying, it is better that I go, because if I go, I will send the Spirit. Which will mean that you will do greater things than I have done. Again, what could that possibly mean? Well, another way to say it is that because Jesus ascends, and as a result, sends his spirit, his work expands far beyond what Jesus did while he was physically present here. I mean, what has been accomplished now that Jesus has left his spirit with his people to carry on his work? Consider it. That the gospel of the kingdom, which Jesus came to proclaim to this obscure uh, corner of the Roman Empire 2,000 years ago, has now been proclaimed for generations upon generations across the world. It has completely transformed the world. Billions upon billions of people have heard and received the message of this kingdom, and unknown multitudes of people have been redeemed and restored and rescued by Christ as a result of Jesus ascending and sending his Spirit. I mean, the extraordinary work of Jesus has been made known by ordinary people for 2,000 years, and the Spirit of Jesus empowered them to do so. In other words, the ascension of Jesus activates the work of Jesus into a movement of power that transformed the world through the Spirit of Jesus. In John 20, there's a really quick but powerful uh, telling uh, story that's, that's told there about Mary Magdalene when she sees Jesus after the resurrection. Uh, Mary, she comes to the tomb and does not see Jesus' body there. Uh, and then, as a result, Jesus appears to her and asks why she's crying. And when he appears to her, she doesn't recognize him at first. She actually thinks he's the gardener. But then Jesus says her name. And when he says her name, it, she immediately then recognizes him and then clings to him. Now, this is a, a total side note. But as I was studying and reading through that story, something struck me. Um, but there's something powerful about the fact that Jesus knows you and calls you by name. I mean, what is salvation if not Jesus calling your name and your eyes being opened to who he is? And, and, and then as a result, we cling to him with an overwhelming joy. Just know that Jesus calls us by name. He knows you. He calls out to you even now. Okay, that was a side note. Back to the story. But here's why I note the story. After she clings to him, his immediate response to her is, do not hold on to me. This is literally what he says. Do not hold on to me, for I have not ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and my God. What is that? Well, it is Jesus saying, here's why 
her initial reaction to cling to him elicited this response. He knew that her clinging on to him and him having to remain was not ultimately going to serve her well. I mean, it's Jesus saying, don't hold on to me as though I'm not going to leave because I am going to leave. But know that if I stay, you will always have to worry about me being with you or me being near you. But if I go, I will send my spirit who will then reside in you. This is what Jesus was saying in Matthew 28 when he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That though he may not, though he may physically go, he's still always with us. For those of us who are his people, we have his spirit, and he has never left us, even though he physically may not be here. And we might think that it would be better to have Jesus with us physically, but according to Jesus, it is better that we don't, because now we have his spirit. And why might be that? Why is that the case? Well, look at uh, our passage. Look at verse 8 of our passage. This is why it's better for us to have the Spirit. Jesus says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we'll get more into this next week when we look at Acts 2, but the fundamental difference between, between God's people before the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and God's people after, which would be us, those who call Christ Savior, the difference is that now, unlike before, we have the constant presence and power of the Spirit residing within us, empowering God's people to be his witnesses. That's why his ascension mattered, because he sent his Spirit So then why does it matter to you specifically? What does this then mean in our lives? Why should it matter? Because the movement of power that we're describing here is taking place through us, those who are Christians, even now. And I want to give you a little bit of a picture of what that looks like. I know I'm pulling in a bunch of other scripture references here, but Ephesians 4 in Ephesians 4, it gives us a clarity about why it's so important that Jesus ascended and sent us his spirit. Verse 10 of Ephesians 4 says this. It says that he who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. In other words, because Christ left and because he sent his spirit, he is now giving his church all that is needed to represent him well on earth. And to what end? In order that his people might be equipped for all acts of service. Jesus has given uh, his church all that is needed for us to do greater things than he was even able to do. He has given us authority to make his word known. In, in the words of Matthew, Matthew 28, he calls us to be his witnesses to the ends of the world. The ascension of Jesus matters because his people are called to be his witnesses. Witnesses of his power and his victorious rule over the cosmos. To be his hands and feet of compassion. To be his heralds 
of good news. If you're a Christian, okay, this blows my mind personally, but if you're a Christian, it is because someone else received power from the Spirit, which was sent by the ascended Christ, who then in that power made Christ known to you. I mean, we who are Christians now are Christians because of the power of God through his Spirit in the life of someone else who told us about Jesus. They took their call seriously. I don't know who they are. I don't know who it was that first brought the message of Jesus to you. But they in that moment took that call seriously to speak those words of truth because the power of God was in them. And now as a result, the power of God resides in you. That's how we are now 2,000 years later still experiencing the work of Jesus in our lives because the Spirit continues to work and is working in you now, my friends. That's why it should matter to you. That is the direct connection to the ascension of Jesus, even now. And so if you trust in Christ, it is because of the ascension. But also know that because we are connected to him in that way, we are now called to do the same thing that Christians have done for generations, which is to continue to be his witnesses. And make no mistake, I'll close with this, make no mistake about the ultimate hope that we have in this passage, that Christ will one day return. This is the great hope of Acts 1. This is what the angels declared, that one day just as the, the disciples saw Jesus depart, one day Christ shall return. And when he does, the next time he comes, he will not come as a humble, meek, or weak child. But when he returns, he returns as a powerful and victorious king. And he will come to usher in the fullness of his kingdom. And until that day, he leaves us his spirits to make known to the world that coming kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the work of Jesus. But today we especially thank you for the ascension of Jesus, our King, and all the hope that comes with it. We thank you for your Spirit that not only made us alive in Christ, but now empowers us to go out and make known the glory and the beauty of Jesus, that we might be witnesses. Lord, we recognize that we are Christians because someone, someone somewhere brought the power of the message of Jesus to us. And so, God, we ask that you would help us to do the same with others, that we might continue to see this kingdom go forth, this power this movement continue for many years to come. We acknowledge that all of this is out of your love and mercy for us, and for that we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.